as we look in the Gospel of John once more. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. John three sixteen to 21. If you're a guest with us today, I want you to know that I did not pick John three sixteen because today is Easter. God in his kindness kind of picked it for us. It's just where we are in our study. But what an amazing providence of God that we on this Easter Sunday, would be able to consider what many have labeled the greatest verse in all the Bible. I realize that such statement could be argued, but there's good evidence to believe that this is one of the greatest, if not the greatest. One has pointed out that each line of this particular opening verse, verse 16, speaks of some of the greatest things, persons, entities in all the world. Listen as I read. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his one and only son, the greatest gift, that whoever the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest simplicity. In him, the greatest attraction shall not perish, the greatest promise, but the greatest difference. Have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. What a beautiful verse. But it's not here alone. This uh, great verse may also be one of the most greatly misunderstood. And so it's actually my desire for all who are here and familiar with John 3.16 to ensure that you have applied this accurately. It may be easy to memorize. It's easily recognizable in our culture. But it's its true meaning, its significance, why it matters is very little known. I would say that John 3.16 is maybe different than what at first blush it seems to be because of two things. One, it's context. The other is who is actually speaking. Contextually, And I say this especially for those of you who weren't able to join us last week at this time. John 3 is actually part of this argument that the gospel writer is giving to ensure that people genuinely believe in Jesus as opposed to bogusly believing in Jesus. The whole conversation started back in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. And there, I just want you to recognize that, that Jesus identifies a group of people who believe in him, who trust in him, and in response, he will not believe in them. He will not entrust himself to them. Just look at it there in your Bibles, John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So, friends, understand the context. John 3.16 is giving an amazing promise, but it's actually an explanation That is to wake us all up to the possibility of spurious belief and to lead us actually into sincere belief. So I I want to like clarify for you just this, this notion that as long as people vaguely have a positive feeling about Jesus or believe in him in some way, that 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 that's somehow what John 3:16 means. Actually, it's arguing for something deeper. It's saying. 
that there is a belief in Jesus that is inappropriate, and there, one, there is one that is appropriate. And this is the Apostle John's explanation of this appropriate belief. Now, hang with me. Last week, we actually said that Jesus does the teaching on what sincere and genuine belief is through this conversation with Nicodemus. And we learn two things from that conversation. Genuine belief is from above. It's something you can't work up on your own. It's something that God must give to you. That's verses 1 through 9. It's from above. God must enable true saving belief. And the second thing is that it's focused on Christ. Not just Christ, but I would say focused on the crucified Lord. There was that analogy, remember, at, taken from Numbers chapter 21, where Jesus concludes his conversation with Nicodemus saying, hey, here's what it means to be genuinely born again. Here's what it means to enjoy eternal life. Even as the Son of Man, I mean, even as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man also be lifted up. Now, think of all the analogies that Jesus could have given to Nicodemus to help him understand saving belief. And what does he do here? He says, hey, uh, the Son of Man being lifted up is going to be like the serpent in the wilderness. He doesn't say the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says a bronze snake. That should shock you a little bit. What Jesus is doing in that very statement is is noting the scandalous nature of what he will undergo for the salvation of all who will believe in him. A snake from all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 was that universal symbol of sin. In some way, Christ is indicating that he will become sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, For a Jewish rabbi like Nicodemus, the person with whom he's speaking in this context, that would be highly offensive. He's saying, you need to believe in me, the Son of Man, the one who came from heaven. You need to believe in me in that way. And how does this highlight genuine belief, sincere belief? Well, the fact is, the people back in John 22 to 25, they didn't believe in Jesus as the crucified Lord. They believed in, in him as the great miracle worker. They believed in him as the one in whom they wanted to believe, one who would fix their problems, one who would remedy their, 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 their early world difficulties. They were looking for a political leader. They were looking for a powerful figure. They weren't looking for one who would die as a sacrifice for sin, and yet that is exactly what Jesus says you must believe, that I am indeed the Lord of glory, the Son of Man, descended from heaven, and I am crucified on a cross, and as evidenced by his resurrection, he is indeed a vindicated Lord. He is indeed that one from above, because he himself conquered death. He says you are believing in that, and when you're focused on that, it's genuine saving belief. Now, here's the crazy thing. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, I would venture to say that they colored the words in verses 16 to 21 the wrong color. In your Bible, it's probably red. But the interesting thing is that what is likely taking place in verses 16 to 21 is the Apostle John's comments on what Jesus said and not the actual words of Jesus. I say this for one reason primarily. There's nowhere else that we know of in Scripture where Jesus actually refers to God as the God. That's what it is literally in the Greek. He normally calls him his father. But God language is that which John normally uses. We see it over and over again in his letters, and we see it all throughout his gospel. And so here, what you've got is a commentary. You've got an explanation. You've had this conversation about genuine belief. It's from above. It's focused on the crucified Lord. And now what John's going to do is give an explanation of why someone must believe in Jesus as the crucified Lord. He's going to... I guess the best word I could use is incentivize belief in Jesus in this way. He's giving incentives. It's like he's stopping like a a preacher and he's saying, look, I want you to believe in Jesus as the one who is crucified for sin. And here's two reasons why. That's the word for. You know John 3.16 well. You've memorized it. You've at least heard it. Uh, The first word of John 3.16 is not God. The first word is for. (laughs) 
Now, I hate to be a grammar geek on an Easter Sunday morning, but the truth is that preposition means something. It is connecting what was previously stated to what is about to follow. It is giving an explanation of something. It is giving you the reason for something. It's good to see so many siblings sitting in the service today. You know how siblings can be to one another. Every once in a while, things can get physically aggressive, and I can just imagine a scenario, again, total imagination, in which one sibling smacks another sibling in the back of the head. Now, the natural question coming from that would be, what did you do that for? Notice the preposition. What did you do that for? They want an explanation of something to which the sibling responds, because you're an idiot or because you were getting on my nerves. But they begin to give the explanation. They begin to give their reasons. For is explanatory. Jesus has just explained that true saving belief is from above and it's focused on the crucified Lord. And now John is going to explain why you need to believe in that now. And he gives two incentives for this belief. The first one is that believing in God's sacrificed son or believing in the crucified Lord receives God's love. When you do that, you are receiving God's love. Verses 16 and 17. Notice the the, the emphasis. For God so loved the world. It's it's a matter of extravagance. He, He loved the world, not just the Jews, but the world in this amazing way. And how is it that he so extravagantly loved the world? One, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Notice that. He loved the world so much that he gave his son. Like, this is a high statement. Then verse 17 is going to repeat it in a different way. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In 16 and 17, you have this affirmation positively that God loves the world. He's not against it. He's for it, as evidenced by the fact that, and here's the two main verbs, that he gave his son and that he sent his son. He gave his son unto eternal life so that you could have eternal life. He sent his son so that you wouldn't be condemned, but that you would be saved. Salvation as opposed to condemnation. Eternal life as opposed to death or perishing. This is why God sent his son. The the whole reason for him entering into the world was to accomplish a particular mission, and that is the salvation of those who would believe. It is his only son, his unique son. It's interesting that this same word in the Greek is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to describe that famous passage in Genesis 22. You remember that? When Abraham gives his one and only son, his unique son, Because God commands him to sacrifice him in a test. And so also here, God, instead of though pulling back the sacrifice and saying, okay, we're going to do a goat instead, he actually allows his son to go to the cross and die on behalf of all those who would believe. To to believe is to receive uh, God's expression of love and grace and kindness towards you. He means to do you well. What cost him everything has cost you nothing, and it is for your benefit. I'm not a huge poetry person. But I did come across these few lines this week from George Herbert, and they made me think. They captured the emotion of this text, I think, in a beautiful way. Who knows not love, let him assay, and taste that juice which on the cross a pike did set abroad. Then let him say, if he ever did taste the like, Love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. It comes from the agony. God felt it as blood, 
but we as wine. He gave, he sacrificed, we receive, we benefit. It's the expression of his love. And so John says, believe in the crucified Lord. Trust, depend upon this one who is God's son, sacrificed and risen again. Don't believe in him merely as a miracle worker. Don't believe in him merely as a political teacher. Don't believe in him merely as one who could make your life better. Believe in him as the sacrificed son for sin. This is how you receive God's love. It's interesting to think of the way that the world just as a whole has rejected this idea of a crucified Lord. They do not like this being the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Uh, We've seen this in China especially over the last 10 to 15 years. Maybe you've seen these news articles in which they're trying to remove crosses from all of these churches. It's a threatening symbol to them. Even actually some churches in the United States for some better reasons than others, uh, have removed crosses from anything within their church buildings or on their Bibles or whatever because they think that it's offensive. (laughs) And the crazy thing is people are offended. They are threatened by the idea of God's Son crucified for sin. I guess probably because it indicates that, well, God violently hates sin. And if God sent His Son into the world... For sin, it implies that we must be pretty bad people. (laughs) We must be sinners. This is a high cost. You can't just write it off. But the irony of all ironies is that the very symbol of the cross that many are trying to erase is intended to be a symbol of life. If you think about what's happened in Western civilization ever since the 1100s, the cross has been the symbol of for life and medical care. (laughs) It's emblazoned on hospitals all across the world and conveniently painted red. That which is a threat to some is a source of life for all. (laughs) And the whole point is that God has crucified His Son as an expression of His love. And why would anybody run from that? Why would anybody resist that? The text is saying, look, believe, for whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I love that term, believe, and it's an interesting one uh, when we try to explain it uh, for others. Like, in what way is one to believe? What does it mean to believe? If it's not just intellectual assent, I came across this story from the famous pioneer missionary John Patton. He went to the New Hebrides Islands, and he found that the natives that he was working with had no written language, and as any pioneer missionary endeavor must do, he had to write a language for them, and then he would teach them that language, and then he would have to translate the Bible for them. This is an amazing work. But when he was doing his translation project, he discovered that they had no word for faith or belief. This was, of course, uh, a difficult thing if you're going to translate the Bible. You can't even translate John 3.16 without the word. So one day he went on a hunt with one of the natives. They shot a large deer, and in the course of the hunt, they tied its legs together, supported it on a pole, and they laboriously made their way back down the mountain path to Patton's home near the seashore. And as they reached the house, both men threw the deer down, and the native immediately flopped into one of the deck chairs on the porch and exclaimed, my, it's good to stretch yourself out here and rest. And it was at that point that Patton immediately jumped to his feet and recorded the phrase, In his final translation of the New Testament, this was the phrase that he used to convey the idea of saving faith, trust, or belief. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever stretches himself out on him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
Do you see that the beauty of what John is calling you to is saying, look, stretch yourself out upon the crucified Lord. Rely upon the one who is God's son, sacrificed for sin. And here's the benefit of that, eternal life. Eternal life is, in the Jewish mind, the resurrection life to come. It's the same as what was earlier in the chapter as seeing and enjoying the kingdom of God, enjoying God's rule. Enjoying God's rule, listen to this, here and now, being in a favorable relationship with him now, and because of that, being in a favorable relationship with him for all eternity. Enjoying his rule and reign in your life now, but not only now, but also for the now after, for for everything to come. In a renewed heavens and earth, you will still enjoy the rule and reign of God. It isn't just like heaven as is so popularly characterized by our culture. This isn't just like um, the Norse Valhalla. This isn't just some, you know, kind of like Mormon, go populate your own planet. This isn't just some kind of wishful thinking, you know, like, like 40 virgins. Like whatever it is that people have made up to be some sweet heavenly place, what this is actually talking about, here's the good news, is that you get to exist under the rule of God now and in a new heavens and a new earth to come. So believe, stretch yourself out on the crucified Lord. And in this very thing, may I make this warning, I don't want to overemphasize it because John doesn't, but let's be clear what the alternative is, friends. I would be a rather cowardly preacher if I didn't point it out. He says, those trusting in, relying upon Jesus, they will enjoy eternal life, resurrection life. They will enjoy the kingdom of God. Those who don't, they will perish. The Greek word perish is good. I mean, translated into English, perish is good. We just don't use it that often. Can I give you one that we use more often? Destruction. Destruction. They will be destroyed. And without even reading into the text, friends, listen to this. If perishing is the logical contrast to eternal life, it seems that John is indicating that whatever this destruction consists of lasts forever. The very John 3.16 that you and I love and hold so near has within it uh, the seeds of what will later be formulated throughout the New Testament, especially as the doctrine of hell or eternal punishment. Jesus came to save you from that so that you could enjoy his rule and reign eternally. He says, so believe, trust. This is the reception of God's love. And I say, friends, that this applies not only to those of you who have not yet trusted in Christ in this way, but this still applies, listen to me carefully, please, this still applies to those who already have trusted in Christ. I would say to you, Keep stretching yourself out on him. Keep relying upon him. Keep resting in him. When you're failing and when you're hurt and when you're lonely and when you're stressed and when you're needy and when you're complacent or misguided or distracted or afraid or despairing, God still loves you and he's shown you that love through his sacrifice son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that Paul's argument to the Romans in their time of deepest distress is basically John 3.16. He says, you ever feel like God doesn't love you? You ever feel like you need a little more, like you need to be reminded of his special grace towards you? Look particularly to the sacrifice son. Listen to his logic in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice that, he's for us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? The point is, you have all you need in God's sacrifice, son. He has shown you the climactic expression of love. And that is supposed to help you in the deepest and most dark moments of life. Paul continues, just listen to, this is, this is Bible logic. This isn't Justin's argument. This is the Holy Spirit's Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Notice the two, the two areas that would bring about distress in the life of a believer. One is failure, when you feel guilt and when you feel shame, when you blow it big time, even though you're already a believer in Jesus. He says, who's going to bring a charge against you? Christ has already died. The son has already been sacrificed. I don't care what you did this week that you were ashamed of. It's covered for those who are believing in Jesus. There's, there's nothing there. You look at his sacrifice, son, it's paid for. It's good. That's the internal distress of personal failure, but there's also the external distress of persecution and problems. He says, what external thing will separate you from God's love? His son has already been sacrificed. Why doubt at all? Sure, the doctor's report may not come out the way that you want it to. Your company's year-end financials, especially around tax time, April 15th, just a few days ago, may not go the way that you want it to go. But the truth is, no matter what you experience, God's Son has still been sacrificed for those who are believing in Him. And that's good news. So he says, not only believe, but keep believing, keep resting, keep relying, keep trusting So John incentivizes belief. He says, hey, believe in God's sacrifice, son, because in so doing, you are receiving God's love. Here's the second incentive, the second incentive that he gets. We should believe in Jesus as God's sacrifice, son, because it proves our pardon. It proves our pardon. It not only is how we receive God's love, it's how we prove our pardon. It's proof. John's going to switch gears a little. And he's going to state a fact in verse 18. Um, This is as basic as it can get. I mean, like, it's just straight up simple. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has believed in the name of the only Son of God. My friends, there's been much uh, discussion in recent days about what it looks like for someone to be genuinely born again. And there are times and there are places in which we can take the deep dive on the the fruit or the behavioral fruits of one who is believing in Jesus. I'm a huge fan of one who is believing in Jesus will indeed behave differently. That's true. Uh, the Bible actually talks about in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh, people who are trying to justify themselves in their own way, they produce a certain kind of, uh, of lifestyle, and then people who are trusting in God's Son through the Spirit, they produce a certain kind of fruit as well. There is a behavioral proof for one who is believing in Jesus, but listen, that is secondary to the primary proof of who is or is not believing in God's Son as his sacrificed and risen Lord. John says, all right, you want to know, here's a great test. Sure, it's a salvation test right here, Uh, especially for those of you who struggle with this, because I know that some, you can get this in your head and you you start to doubt. This is a great passage. All right, let's just kind of ask the questions. Question one, who is not condemned according to the verse? Answer, Whoever is believing in him, whoever believes in him. Notice that, that's whoever. And I say this in light of the age in which we we live. It is regardless of someone's skin color or ethnicity or political party or even their past sexual history, whoever is believing in Jesus is not condemned. You know what the word condemn means? It means that if you were to stand before God, he would condemn you. You would be guilty. You would have to suffer the punishment for sin. He says, you're not condemned. All right, so who is condemned? Good question. Who is already condemned? That's a better way to put it. Who is already condemned? Question two, uh, the answer is there in verse 18 again, whoever does not believe. All right, so the condemned person is not believing in Jesus as God's sacrificed son, then the not condemned person is believing in God's sacrifice, son. And then he, bonus question, uh, why are the condemned already condemned? Answer, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. 
What's interesting here, friends, is that the tense, the Greek tense, I don't bring this out often, but it's worth it here, it's the perfect, perfect. There's, there's present tense, there's past tense, you know, English. But there's also a perfect tense. Perfect tense is when something has started in the past and continues into the present. So it's not just believed, that's just past tense, right? It's has believed. Believed at some point in the past with results continuing on into the present. Friends, this is where grammar is going to make a huge difference in your life. I know that there have been some who have said, I remember at some point in time when I was seven years old, I did this thing and I believed in Jesus. I, I, I acted. I did this act of belief. But if that belief has not continued into life, it was not saving belief. You're still condemned. That was intellectual assent in a moment of time. It is not ongoing belief, ongoing reliance upon God's sacrificed son. Let's get his stuff clear. Whoever is believing, continuing to believe in the name of the only Son of God, how is he defined the only Son of God? Not just Jesus the miracle worker, not just Jesus the political leader, not just Jesus the one who does everything we want him to do, but the Jesus who was actually sacrificed for sin and risen again for our justification. That is who you're believing in. And what he's doing here is he's incentivizing belief through a binary proposition. I said that in the... Uh, service this morning, but we don't talk about binary propositions very much. Our, our culture rebels against the term binary. <laughs> they like sliding scale everything. But in Scripture, there are black and white propositions. There are zeros and there are ones. There's a positive or there's a nothing. It kind of reminds me of, I was watching March Madness and uh, they kept doing the same commercials over and over and over again. And since I watched multiple basketball games, I saw the Uber Eats commercial 5,000 times. (laughs) Just in case you didn't know, Uber Eats now does more than just food. (laughs) They can get you stuff from other stores as well. And so anyway, it's kind of a funny proposition. You know, the the guy, he's ordering the stuff from Uber Eats, and and then he's trying to illustrate that some of the things you should eat and some of the things you should not eat. And so, like, he pulls out a basketball, and he tries to bite it, and he realizes that's a not eats. <laughs> and then he pulls out chips, and he's like, oh, that's a eats. Well, then the second commercial comes out, and things get more complicated. So, like, he pulls out, like, a dog toy, and he's like, that's not an eats. Uh, and then he pulls out, like, a bottle of wine, and he says, oh, well, that's an eats, but by drinking. <laughs> and then he gets to the last one, and it is toothpaste. And he's, like, really conflicted. And he's like, that's an eats, but a not swallows. <laughs> like the point was, well, there, there's kind of gray categories, you know, eat, not eat. I want you to know that belief is not so fluid. It's way more clear cut than that. If you've ever used a, a multimeter or a voltage meter, you're going to get the idea of how belief functions. Like, I don't know if you've been there, (laughs) I have, (laughs) where you're looking at a wire and you don't really know if there's anything going through it. There's nothing that I can see in my eyes, but when I touch that voltage meter to it, something happens to the screen. I'm like, oh, better not mess with that. I have made the mistake of messing with it when I shouldn't have. But it's very clear. There's either either life in that thing or there's not. It's either dead or it's alive. It's alive. It's a binary proposition. What John is saying here is that when the multimeter from on high touches the soul, it reads ongoing belief in God's sacrificed son. There's life there. If there's no ongoing belief in God's sacrificed son, it's a dead wire. There ain't nothing there. Now, that being said, he's totally, like, reduced the proof of our pardon into this proposition. Are you believing in God's sacrificed son, or are you not believing in God's sacrificed son? And it sounds so bald. It sounds so stark. Like, man, I just wish that Jesus would give us a little more room for those who mean well. 
for those who are really, really sincere, but, but, but maybe, and they're truly, truly believing, but they're not believing in Jesus alone. Maybe they believe in Jesus plus this or that. I mean, the text will not allow it. And you know why John here will unpack the baldness of this declaration with his own explanation, and he's going to explain why. Why it's reduced to belief alone. And he's going to use the analogy of light. In verses 19 and 20, he describes those who don't believe and therefore reject the light. In verse 21, he's going to describe those who believe and therefore receive the light. Now, I want you to get the picture before you get the point. Sometimes I make up illustrations, I try. Sometimes they're just in the text. This is in the text. Now, I want you to get the picture. Don't try to apply it yet. Just get the picture. This is what he says. Verse 19. And this is the judgment or the verdict. Here it is. I'm going to explain the verdict. I'm going to explain the sentence. I'm going to explain why some are condemned and some are cleared. The light has come into the world. Don't don't spiritualize it yet. Just think of light. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now, get get the logic. Remember, picture before point. Here's the picture. Imagine you're at your house. It's a new moon. We're not even, it's not full moon. It's new moon. It's dark outside. Right? And you, and there's been a blackout or a brownout, whatever term you want to use. But there is zero electricity. And someone in your household, as you're clamoring around, trying to take care of children, trying to keep yourself alive, you know, like they actually find a light. It could be the LED light on the back of your phone. It could be a flashlight in a drawer somewhere. But they provide the light that is needed for you to exist in this new dark world. And as they're offering you this lantern, you're running from it. As opposed to to it. You're rejecting it as opposed to receiving it. Now, if you destroy yourself, hypothetically speaking, if you injure yourself, if you have a less than enjoyable experience in the dark, whose fault is it? It's yours. You chose the darkness over the light. That's the picture. Now get the point. Who is the light? It is Jesus. He has come into the world. God has sent him so that we would know how to not only enjoy the salvation he's offered, but live the life that he has designed us to live. And he offers himself as light. And you know what people do? They run from it. They resist it. Maybe they muster up the courage to come on Easter. But they don't want the exposure that would come from the light. Why? Because the text says their deeds were evil. They love their own sinful, selfish way of living. Friends, uh, uh, Christians, I say this to those of you who truly are believing in Jesus. Unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem. It is a problem of the heart. People don't come to Jesus because they still love their sin. They they don't want the change that would come with believing in him as God's sacrifice son. And so John says, of course they're condemned. They had access to the light. Jesus shown himself brightly to them and they've rejected him. They chose their own way. They chose their own works. They wanted to keep living however they jolly well pleased. They knew that coming to Christ would bring about changes that they didn't want. But there's a second group of people. And what I want you to note about the second group of people, and I say this very sensitively to those of you who are not in Christ, you're not believing in him, I'm going to take a time out, I don't want you to think that I or anyone around here is somehow self-righteous and we're just better morally than you are because we've come to Jesus and you have. It wasn't like we earned it and we get to come to Jesus. Like this next verse is actually going to show That the only reason why some come to Jesus is because God enabled them to, not because they were better. It's interesting that the contrast is not clean. He talks about those who do evil, and then he contrasts them with those who do, and notice verse 21, what is true. You would think he'd say those who do what is good. 
There's those who do evil, and then there's those who do good. But instead, this is what he says. There's two groups of people. There's those who do what is evil, and then there's those who do what is according to the truth. And there's this group of people who are living by truth. They're living by faith, their belief. And what do they do? They come to the light, the light who is Jesus, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Now, here's a strange thing. Why in the world do these people come to the light? It's not because their lives are so clean that they're saying, all right, I want to show everybody how great I am. You know what it is? It's because, and this text is so careful here, it's because God has changed their life and they know that as they come to the light, who is Jesus, God will get the glory. Listen to this. There's something that's happened inside of them where they are obsessed with God looking good in their life. They're not trying to justify themselves. They're not trying to make themselves look great. They come to Jesus so that God will get the glory. That's something, friends, when I say that bona fide belief is from above and focused on Christ, this is that from above part. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I mean, like, I don't know how to explain how all of a sudden Jesus becomes beautiful and attractive and appealing. I totally get why some people would reject Christ because he looks like a bloody, mangled mess, at least from the world's perspective. I mean, you see what he did in his life, and you see the way that it ended, and you're like, man, I don't, I don't really want any piece of that. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul acknowledges that this whole thing about a Christ who is crucified, it is foolishness. It is absolute moros. That's the Greek word. It is moronic to the Jews. It is offensive to the Gentiles. It's like, who, who would want this? And yet the text is saying God gives life to some, and here's the proof. They actually come to the light because they want God to be glorified in it. When you place the electric gauge on the life of those who live in accordance with the truth, you'll find that they are living by the light of Christ. They have a hatred for evil. And when you place the multimeter on the life of those who are rejecting Christ, they are living by a life of self, and they hate exposure. But friends, uh, if, if, if you're in that group that's not ongoingly believing in Jesus as God's sacrificed son, uh, hear me well, please. Um, please. Don't, don't think that because of some religious experience that you had in the past that you may actually sincerely be enjoying the saving benefits of our Lord Jesus. L- let me ask you, here's, here's this great diagnostic question. When you think of Christ dead, buried, and risen again, just that topic, does that fascinate you? Like, Are you drawn to that? Or is that just tolerable or disgusting to you? It's the difference between the moth and the roach. There's something about a moth that just loves the light. It's drawn to it. The roach scurries away. Do you find yourself drawing near to the crucified and risen again Christ Or do you find yourself tolerating or rejecting? That's the test of one who is genuinely believing unto eternal life. And friends, if you're here today and the the multimeter touches your soul and it reads, ongoing belief in God's crucified Son, if that is, is true of you, I would say keep living in the light of God's truth. I love that line from C.S. Lewis. It's at the end of his essay, it's theology, poetry. It's often misquoted, so I'm going to try to get it right. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. 
Friends, do you see everything else through the lens of what God has done for you in sacrificing his son on your behalf? Like, this should be the reference point for the Christian. Sure, in light of that, you see your sin, by the way. It doesn't just totally disappear on you. But here's what's true. You keep bringing it to the light who is Jesus. I want to read you this. This will encourage you because... I think, just personal word testimony, I don't do this very often, I was converted at an early age. I was joking around earlier about those who, not joking, I was very serious, but I made a statement dismissively earlier of some who supposedly believed in Jesus when they were six or seven uh, and then didn't believe anymore. I am one who truly, I think, believed at an early age, even maybe six or seven. And people ask me, well, how in the world do you think that you were actually converted at that time? Is it because you stopped sinning? Oh, my goodness, did I not? Oh, I got my butt handed to me in my teenage years especially because I wasn't in an environment that was teaching gospel truth for Christians. It was only for non-Christians. And sin just decimated me. I was so afraid of what people thought. I was dominated by lust, pornography. I had two lives going, one at church, another at school. I craved popularity. I just, I wanted people to like me. I wanted to be successful. You know what my my life's goal was at times? It was like, if I could just make six figures a year and have a boat and go to the river on the weekends, that would be the good life. And yet, I still think I was born again. Why in the world so? Here's why. Because when I sinned in those ways, I hated it. And I kept going to the light who is Jesus. I just kept going. I'm like, oh God, forgive me again. Thank you for your son and what he has sacrificed for me and and what he has done to pay the penalty of my, I just kept coming and coming and coming over and over and over and over again to the light. And did you know, Christian, that that is actually the way that this very apostle John will explain it for those who are new in Christ. Listen to this. This is what it looks like. I don't want you to think that somehow all sin goes away immediately. Here is how he describes our relationship with the light after we've already come to the light. You ready? 1 John 1, 5 through 10, just listen. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Listen to this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see what he's saying? It's like if you're saying that you've come to the light and all of a sudden you don't sin anymore, you are a liar. But if you say, yeah, I've come to the light and guess what? I see sin. The light just continues to expose more and more sin to me. And you know what you keep doing? You just keep asking. You keep confessing. You keep forsaking. You keep battling. Like that is the sign of the regenerate life. The unregenerate one says, I think I'm going to fix my sin problem on my own. I don't want anybody to know about that. I'm going to handle this apart from God's means uh, through Christ. I'm going to handle this apart from God's church. I'm just going to do this on my own. But the regenerate one keeps coming to Christ in the means that he himself has provided. Friends, God has sent his son as a sacrifice, and he has risen again. And the truth of the matter is some will reject and some will receive. Some are drawn to the light like that moth. Some scurry away like the roach. How can this be? How can the same sun shine upon us and produce such varied responses? It's that old anecdote. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. I can't explain the inner workings of God. I can't explain your natural disposition or 
uh, actual detestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, but this is what I know, that when the sun, S-O-N, has shined upon those who are truly is, their hearts melt. They want him. They desire him. They come to him. And those who are rejecting, their hearts harden. They hate him. They resist him. Is it in your heart to believe or to keep believing in Christ today? Have you stretched yourself out on him in rest? Are you doing so? If not, or if struggling, receive God's love. If not, if struggling, display that proof of pardon by trusting in him again. This sacrificed and risen again son, he is our Lord. He is our salvation. Let us keep coming to him in faith. Will you pray? Before I lead us in prayer, I just want to say that if there's anyone here who wants to believe or doesn't know that they believe, I'd be happy to talk with you. Our elders would be happy to speak to you. We can talk today. You can fill out one of those connect cards and ask to meet with us this week. But we want you to believe in God's sacrifice, Son. For those who are in Christ, let's pray together. Father, you've given us your Son. There is nothing else that heaven can give. But you have loved us. You have pardoned us. Remind us, draw us to ongoing, consistent expressions of faith and dependence upon you. And for those who are resisting, those who are rejecting, those who are not believing, persuade them today. Give them life from above. Draw them to your Son, the light, our salvation, who is Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.